Welcome to WADA, ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. Hi, good afternoon and welcome everybody to WADA, ADA Live. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to the 45th episode of ADA Live. My name is Barry Whaley. I'm the project director for the Southeast ADA Center. And our topic for today's show is Think College, Inclusive Higher Education for People with Intellectual Disability. As a reminder, ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your questions about inclusive higher education at any time at adalive.org. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, my friend and colleague, Dr. Meg Griegel. Meg's the co-director of Think College and a senior research fellow at the Institute for Community Inclusion at University of Massachusetts, Boston. She's a national expert on inclusive higher education and transition for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Meg spent the past 15 years trying to advance the field of inclusive higher education, working with colleges, schools, families, and students to develop, expand, and improve inclusive higher education options for people with intellectual disability. At Think College, she serves as the principal investigator on a variety of research grants And she's co-authored, along with Deb Hart, the groundbreaking book, Think College, Post-Secondary Education Options for Students with Intellectual Disabilities, as well as many other book chapters, journal articles, and research-to-practice briefs. She's also produced a short documentary on inclusive higher education. So, Meg, welcome to our show. Hi, Barry. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you. Today we're talking about inclusive higher education for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And Meg, I'd like to start by asking you to explain what is meant by inclusive higher education. Sure, Barry. Um, So inclusive higher education is a relatively new field, really it's developed in the past probably 15 to 18 years. And what it is is providing access to college experiences for students with intellectual disability. Um, these programs really started as students began to age out of high school and they looked at their peers and to see what they were doing and many if not most of them were having some kind of experience in college and people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families wanted to um, forge a path toward college as well. That really became um, more formalized when the Higher Education Act was reauthorized in 2008. The Higher Education Opportunities Act, as it was called in the reauthorization, provided um, new guidelines and new access points to higher education for people with intellectual disability. Um, It created model demonstration projects to create new programs. It created a coordinating center, which St. College has served as for the past seven years to collect data from those programs and to provide assistance to those programs. And then another exciting feature of the Higher Ed Act is that it created um, a new access point for federal student aid for students with intellectual disability, which I think we can talk about a little bit later. 
So these three things really change significantly the, um, the amount of programs that were available to people with intellectual disabilities and really began to change the conversation about how people with intellectual and developmental disabilities should plan to go to college. Meg, perhaps you could explain, what, what are some of the benefits that, that students receive being involved in, a, in an inclusive higher education program? Well, when you think about college and what it offers to all people in terms of growing up and exploring the potential future you'd like to have, um, those same benefits are seen by people with intellectual and developmental disability. So college offers a variety of academic and social growth uh, experiences, just like it does for people with other disabilities or without disabilities. In addition to the benefit to students, I would imagine that there are benefit to those institutions of higher education as well. Yeah, it's, it's really a fantastic dynamic. Um, most colleges are trying to be responsive to the people in their community and make sure they're able to meet the needs of, of diverse populations. So when colleges are serving students with intellectual and developmental disabilities, they're really learning how to be responsive to a wider array of diverse learners, both in terms of their access to coursework and helping students access credentials that will help them either go on to further higher education or get a good job and make a decent living. So we've seen benefits to the colleges, both in terms of being able to use universal design principles, but also in, in how the faculty think about and respond to the legitimacy of a student who may look a little different than some of the other students that they've taught in the past, both in terms of the goals they have for education and how they're going to use that education in the future. Just kind of as a follow-up, Meg, you mentioned universal design principles, and 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 sometimes it's it, it's hard to understand, especially from an AD or from an ADA background, how that applies in the educational environment. Could you talk a little bit about universal design? Yeah, in in the higher education community, uh, using universal design um, becomes really impactful, not just for people with disability or intellectual disability, but it can really help all college students um, access some of the material. If you think about the typical format of maybe your traditional college class, you go into a room and a professor standing at the front of the room and they have a chalkboard where they're jotting notes all over the place and students are furiously trying to scribble those notes into their notebook. And you know, this is just one example of one technique, but uh, with something as simple as making the content accessible by providing a copy of the notes beforehand to all the students in the classroom, not simply to a student who's requested it, but if the format is those notes are available on a course website and those notes are also created in a, an accessible PDF format, so a student for whom reading is a challenge, the computer could then read those notes to the student to help them study. It supports all different types of learning modes, whether you're an auditory learner or a visual learner. It provides access to the same material 
But instead of it being lockward in maybe sort of a disorganized way, all the students have access to the same content and in a way that is accessible to their learning style. Well, that's good to know. So, so there is benefit to all students, not only the students with, with intellectual disability in the classroom. I'm wondering, inclusive higher education is, is obviously still a, in its infancy. It's a new concept and just developing. I'm sure that there must be some barriers that your students have encountered that perhaps have prevented them from going to college. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah, you're right in saying that this field is in its infancy. And I'm very hopeful because I've seen a great deal of change even in the past 10 or 15 years, Um, and in particular since the Higher Education Opportunities Act was passed in 2008, we've seen a tremendous growth in not only interest for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to go to college, but We've also seen a a growth in the number of colleges and universities who are beginning to explore creating access points. But you're also right that we (laughs) it's still a bit of an uphill climb when it comes to people's understanding of what inclusive higher education options are, um, what their goals are, and how students can access them and then use those experiences in their future. I think the greatest barrier is expectations. And um, the default expectation for people with intellectual disabilities at this point in our country is not that they will have access to uh, higher education once they leave high school. So the typical pattern right now is Students go through a high school program if they stay between the ages of 18 and 21. Possibly they might have access to community-based transition services in those final two or three years of their experience. But often those experiences mimic much of what they've had in the first four years of high school, and they leave transitioning into possibly a sheltered work experience, possibly a supported employment experience, But it's not optimal, and it absolutely isn't providing students with their best chance of a better future. Um, So I think the expectations piece, both in terms of working with families and helping them realize that these options are beginning to be put on the table, but also with the professionals who help guide parents' expectations, it's really important for them to get this message early and often that all of the best options are on the table. Which one is the best option for their child? That's to be determined. But having a job and going to college should be on the table and should be the goal for every student, regardless of their disability. And the order (laughs) that those things happen is, is part of the art of doing good transition planning. I would think also just in terms of of the development of of the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act and uh, those pre-ETS mandates that that Voc Rehab have that that include uh, counseling in inclusive higher education, that's just another way of of raising those expectations and, and getting that information out, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I'm very excited about the changes from WIOA and the pre-employment transition service focus. 
I think in particular related to inclusive higher education, those connections can be really impactful for transition-aged youth who are being served in higher ed as part of a dual or concurrent enrollment program. And those types of programs um, are typically run in partnership between an institution of higher education, so a two- or four-year college, that's working with a local education agency. And they collaborate to create a course of study for a student who's still being served as a special education student to access transition services, um, academic and employment experiences in the college. And bringing in that partnership with vocational rehabilitation personnel and expertise to really enhance how you can focus the coursework, focus the job experiences on really assuring a student will then leave their special education experience with paid employment, integrated paid employment, is really critical. Um, the nice part of having those experiences implemented in a college setting is that it also plants the seed that learning, accessing desired learning, uh, can have a direct impact on students' employment outcomes, both in the short term, right out of high school, but also in the long term. Because very few of us leave high school with the job that we want to keep for the rest of our lives. So we need to help students understand that working and learning are iterative skills that you may want to come back to at different points in your life. So you may want to leave high school and get a paid job and then decide you want a better job or a job in a different field, but that may require training. So then you're going to go back into what do I want to learn? Where can I learn it? How can I apply it? And then you get a better job. So that iterative cycle of working and learning that I think many people, as they go through their professional life between their early 20s and <laughs> whenever they're lucky enough to stop working, um, that same pattern, I don't think we've really set people with intellectual disabilities and their family and support systems up to think about it. It's, instead, we're often focusing so much on that first job. Oh, let's make sure he or she leaves school with a job. And then thinking somehow magically that job's just going to work out forever <laughs> or when it falls apart, which may do for lots of different reasons. It, it could be that the student doesn't want to keep that job. It could be that it's a mismatch with management or skills. But in early career jobs, we know that, that job change is normal, and we should plan for it. We should expect it, and we should give students and their families the skills to help navigate those job transitions. And part of that process is incorporating further training or learning in higher ed. That's just a very powerful message. Thank you for that, Meg. That that's very important uh, information for I'm sure families to hear and and for students thinking about higher education as an option. And you know, speaking of of higher education, you know, I have college age children. And I can tell you that college is expensive. So can students with intellectual disability and developmental disabilities can they get financial aid? Um, in some cases, yes. 
uh, part of the changes that happened in the Higher Education Opportunities Act in 2008 is that the Department of Ed created a new um, access point to Title IV aid. Title IV aid is federal student aid. So for students with intellectual disability who previously couldn't get access to federal student aid because they couldn't get a, they, many of them weren't able to get a high school diploma, they weren't able to pass an ability to benefit test, and they weren't seeking to matriculate toward a degree. And those are the requirements to be eligible for financial aid. The secretary in the last um, Higher Ed Act author, reauthorization waived those three requirements. So now students who are not going to get a high school diploma could not pass an ability to benefit test and are not matriculating toward a degree but want to attend a program that has been approved by financial aid to offer aid to students with intellectual disability can get three forms of student aid. They can get Pell Grants. They can get supplemental educational opportunity grants, and they can have access to work-study funds. Now, this isn't automatic, though. The college has to apply to be approved as a comprehensive transition program. So they have to meet certain requirements. Having a course of study for students with intellectual disability, it can be credit or non-credit. The college's financial aid office has, has applied to be approved as a CTP. Um, a comprehensive transition program, sorry for the acronym, then they can offer those three forms of aid to students with intellectual disability. At this time, students with intellectual disability are not able to apply for or receive federal student loans. Just so I understand, not every inclusive higher education program then would be one of these comprehensive transition programs that you mentioned. Right. They would not know. There's a list on the Federal Student Aid website, and we have um, on thinkcollege.net, our website, two resources that would probably help families and students and other professionals learn about what's available. We have a program database that's all the programs that we know of in the country that are serving students with intellectual disability. And if they have been approved as a comprehensive transition program, we have that indicated in the program listing. Um, we also have uh, an online module for colleges that want to become approved CTPs that walks them through the process of how to put together an application, what the components look like, have sample documents so that colleges can learn about what is in, entailed in that application process. Now, we're not involved, just to be clear. I think college is not involved in determining um, who becomes an approved CTP, but we did work with federal student aid to create supplemental um, guiding resources to help more colleges engage in that process. Great. Thank you, Meg. Uh, ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions about inclusive higher education, please submit it at any time on our online forum at adalive.org. Now let's pause for a word from our sponsor. When I was younger, I was never told to think about going to college. I was never really told to think big about much. But I still wanted to go to college. Like my sister. It took a lot of work. But I made it. And I'm a student at Bridgewater State University. At Mass Bay Community College. At UMass Boston. To make your dreams come true. And think college. 
For information about college for people with intellectual disabilities, visit thinkcollege.net. Welcome back to our show. We're talking with Meg Regal, the co-director of Think College at University of Massachusetts, Boston, about inclusive higher education for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Meg, are all college programs for students with intellectual disabilities the same? No, no, very, they are not. Um, and I think that is a good thing. Um, we, I think what we want to see in, as the inclusive higher education progresses as a field is that there is increased diversity in the types of colleges, whether it's two-year colleges, four-year colleges, technical or trade colleges. Uh, I think as we expand the options for students with intellectual disability, they'll become clearer and clearer which college is a good match for students based on their interests and needs. Um, in, in addition to the types of college that are enrolling students, there's also the length of the program. So some programs are one year, some are two, some are three or four year programs. So knowing the length of program, whether or not the program uh, provides access to a residential experience, either on campus or off campus, whether the program has a strong background in supporting students to have meaningful internships while they're in the program or supports them to engage in paid employment while they're taking courses. And then a piece that I think is really integral because these are higher education programs is the access students have to existing college coursework. There is um, a great array of access. Some programs provide uh, very strong access and comprise most of students' course of study with access to inclusive courses. So these are typical college courses that are attended by other students, both with or without disability. Students might access them for credit. Students may access them just as an audit option or a pass-fail. That's really determined by the institution who's creating the, the program of study. But there are also programs that have created specialized courses that are directed specifically to people with intellectual disability and attended only by people with intellectual disability. And these courses may focus particularly on study skills, campus navigation, social skills support, uh, executive functioning skills, or it may focus on a particular academic skill where the college staff creating the program don't have confidence that the student will be able to navigate the typical options in a successful way. So as as this field is progressing, I hope to see more access to existing courses um, because I think that helps not only the student have a greater array of learning options, but it also helps the institutions of higher education make sure their content is accessible and their um, instructional styles are also responsive to students who have a diverse array of learning styles and goals. 
Meg, a couple of times earlier, you've you've mentioned you know employment and job outcomes for students who are involved in inclusive higher education, and I know that Think College now what you're seven years into you know developing these models of inclusive higher education. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the life outcomes have been for students who've participated? Yeah, I can, um, and we do have some data on students who've accessed programs that were funded through um, a model demonstration project that was funded in 2010. And what we've seen is over the course of the five years of that program funding is that student employment outcomes increased with students while they were in the program and leaving the program having much better employment outcomes than we've seen in the national averages. So, um, unfortunately, the national average for employment rate for people transitioning youth or young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities can be between 14 to 18%, depending on the data source you look at, but very, very low employment rates in paid integrated employment. The students who access these model demonstration projects, which are known as transition post-secondary programs for students with intellectual disabilities, or the acronym that is typically used because that is so long and hard to say, is students who went to a college or university that was hosting a federally funded TIPSID program. These students um, were employed at 40%. Um, And I I truly believe that as we move forward with this, that that 40% is going to continue to grow because in many cases, more than half of the students who were employed in the program had never had a paid job before in their life. So when you think about this is the first time anybody had actually tried to support them to engage in integrated. So I, I think as we grow, this field, the employment outcomes are going to continue to grow. But I I think it's also, I would caution listeners to think about higher ed as only a path to employment. I truly believe it is a path to employment and to better employment. But the other pieces of growth in your life that you get out of a college experience aren't necessarily as easily measured as employment, but the maturity we see in the students after they've had a year or two in college, the social connections and social networks that they have, if they've had a chance to live on campus or use public transportation to get to and from courses or their job, their ability to engage with their friends and family, um, as most adults do, changes after going through a college experience and what they think is possible. I think this is really the critical piece. The the trajectory of their hopes changes because what they now have been exposed to in terms of what other people do and what other people's hopes are has, has broadened what they think they can do. And I think that's really important for us to remember. This is not just about placement, check the box off, you've got a job, you're done. This is really about accessing desired learning to achieve a life that you want and knowing that that conversation doesn't end just because you've left a program. That's well said. Thank you, Meg. 
I'm curious to, if you could talk a little bit about these IHE programs, these inclusive higher ed programs. What are some of the challenges that they face? Um, sure. So I think sometimes the challenge for inclusive higher ed is if you've heard of it, but there isn't one in your backyard or in your state or even in your region, you may not really know what that means. And because of this culture of sometimes low expectations for people with intellectual disability, it can be challenging to help people understand what an inclusive higher education program would look like until they've seen it with their own eyes. So we've, we've tried to address that to some extent by creating some video resources, including the film you mentioned at the beginning, Rethinking College, which is available for free on our website. Um, and part of the reason we created those resources is because we filmed students all over the country accessing classes. We filmed their peers. We filmed their instructors. We filmed the college presidents and leadership and their parents so that people have a way to see themselves in these programs um, because right now there really are too few of them. I think that's another real barrier is there's only a handful of programs. Now that, that handful has grown by leaps and bounds in the past five or ten years, but we're still only looking at about 260 programs. And if you compare that to the over 7,000 programs at two- and four-year colleges, around the country, um, we have about 3% of the options that everybody else with other disabilities or without disabilities have in terms of higher ed options. So I think that's a challenge we're still facing. Um, another barrier is funding, because in order to get these programs started, it does take some, some um, fiscal resources. And how you keep them sustainable isn't the same in every state. So some states have dedicated state lottery funds to support scholarships for students. Other states have put some money into their state budget for program development or program evaluation. And I think as we're moving forward, state policymakers and state legislators are beginning to see that this is a part of the conversation if we're going to help the students who have now gone through transition services in their high school in order to optimize their outcomes. We need to have a second chapter to their learning. Their learning can't stop once they leave, once they leave um, secondary special education. So I think those are some of the barriers that we're uh, starting to see. So, yeah, that state buy-in is very important just for the state legislature to value the, the work that you're doing and, and understanding that in transition this is the recognizable next step and a natural step for, for students to consider college. Yeah, and I, I believe it's getting started, but I, I think we still have some work to do. And I believe as we continue to get good and even better data, not only not only on students' activities and outcomes right at exit, but the long-term follow-up data we're just starting to wrap our arms around, I think that will help us make the case for continued investment in this. But those types of conversations should be long-term conversations, just like the impact of vocational rehabilitation on employment when you see the greatest impact is sometimes six to ten years down the road. 
And I think we have to remember that the impact of higher education is a long-term impact conversation. So gazing into your crystal ball, what does the future (laughs) of inclusive higher ed look like, Meg? You know, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that in order for these programs to have the most impact on students' lives is we have to ensure that when they leave the program, they are attaining a credential and that that credential is meaningful and provided by the institution of higher education that hosted the student um, and that that credential is meaningful to other institutions of higher education and to employers in specific industries. And credential development is a very complicated issue. There's a lot that goes into it in higher education. There's a lot of potential to partner with employment uh, or employer um, and business networks. So I, I feel like in five years we'll have a better sense of the different types of credentials that programs have created a path to. And ideally, these are existing credentials that other students with or without disabilities also have access to in their institution of higher ed. I think another piece that's going to be coming down the road, and Think College has been working on this for about five years, is accreditation. Currently, there is no accreditation process for these programs if they are receiving Um, if students in these programs are receiving federal student aid at an approved comprehensive transition program, which I know is just a mouthful, um, but those programs are, the program isn't accredited. They're being housed at an accredited university. So the issue of accreditation is really about quality, quality assurance. We know that this program offers a meaningful path to significant learning. We can document what students are going to learn, and then we're going to hold ourselves accountable to make sure that those students actually achieve our anticipated outcomes, just like other programs around the country that have varied focuses are accredited. Accreditation for programs that serve students with intellectual disability would give students and their families who may be giving significant time and resources to attend these programs to assure that this, when the students leave, what they leave with is meaningful learning and um, a credential that they can take to whatever their next step is. Meg, thank you so much for being with us today. Meg is the co-director of Think College. Uh, and this episode and all previous WADA episodes are archived on our website at adalive.org. And I want to thank you, our ADA Live listening audience, for listening in today. Uh, The Southeast ADA Center is grateful for your support and your participation in these series of WADA, ADA Live broadcasts. Reminder, you can submit your questions about any of our ADA Live topics by going to adalive.org. I want you to join us again Wednesday, July 5th when our guest will be Dr. Larry Logue, Senior Fellow of the Burton Blatt Institute, discussing disability rights since the Civil War. Again, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, please contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. Again, that's 1-800-949-4232. And remember, all calls are free and they're confidential. Thank you for listening to 
ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic. And you can call 1-800-949-4232 for answers to your ADA questions.